What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that just blow your freaking mind because today the episode is insane. Now, I have to mention, okay, we're talking essentially about aliens, but it's like the smart people version, okay? Uh, it's not conspiracy theories. We've got the expert, essentially, and I'll go through his bio, but it is dense, right? And what I found is with people who are this intelligent, who dedicate their life to something, they are incredibly articulate, as is our guest, but frankly, they're just smarter than me, right? And they're smarter than most of us. And so I would just say, sink into this one, give it the space and the time and let it really mess with your head in a positive way. Also, before we get into it, I'm still talking to and surveying listeners. Email me, chris at smartpeoplepodcast.com. If you're willing to have a quick Zoom call or take a survey about our show, about what you like, etc. Also, for those that are waiting on that survey, it's coming. I promise. I appreciate everyone who's reached out. Okay. So this week on the show, we are interviewing Professor and Dr. Avi Loeb. He's the author of the new book, Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars. I have to give you this background on Avi because I feel like I want you to take this conversation seriously and to know he knows his stuff. So he's a professor of science at Harvard. He's the longest serving chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy, the founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative, and the current director of the Institute for Theory and Computation within the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. He also heads the Galileo Project. He chairs the advisory committee for the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative and was former chair of the Board on Physics and Astronomy of the National Academies. He's written eight books, more than a thousand scientific papers, 
He's a New York Times bestseller. And in 2012, Time selected him as one of the 25 most influential people in space. So that was a lot. I think in today's world with all the nonsense, all the information, the incorrect information, the clickbait, it's important to know we are constantly trying to find the person or the people that know their stuff. An obvious one of them. Also, super important. Most likely, by the time you listen to this, Avi and his team will have released the press release that we allude to many times in this episode, essentially outlining what he believes is our best piece of information ever regarding the existence of extraterrestrials. If you want to read that or any of his stuff, go to avi-loeb.medium.com, avi-loeb.medium.com, and by around the 23rd-ish, it should be there. If you're driving and can't remember this, in the Smart People Podcast post. So if you go to smartpeoplepodcast.com, it'll be right there. All right. Hope you enjoy. If you do, tell a friend, first and foremost, tell a family member, talk about it over the dinner table, tell them about Smart People Podcast. Let's get into our conversation with Avi Loeb as we talk about his new book, Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars. Enjoy. So regarding Oumuamua, for those who are unfamiliar, you said that it was most plausibly of extraterrestrial manufacture. And for somebody with your knowledge base and your background to say that most plausibly we found this thing that is of extraterrestrial manufacture is pretty astounding. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why you believe it is extraterrestrial? Well, this was uh, the first object that was uh, identified as coming from outside the solar system based on its speed. It was uh, passing near Earth and was flagged as a near-Earth object by a telescope in Hawaii that was searching for near-Earth objects to warn us against any threats from space. Uh, And uh, they realized that this object is actually not bound to the sun. It's moving faster than the escape speed from the solar system. And they named it Oumuamua, which means a scout in the Hawaiian language, because it was the first object identified as such, uh, the size of a football field. And of course, the initial assumption would be to say, well, it's a rock, just like the ones we've seen in the solar system coming from another star. But uh, it was uh, very unusual in its properties. Uh, And as more data came in, the more unusual it became. So at first, the amount of light reflected from it, um, it was roughly the size of a football field and was reflecting sunlight. Uh, The amount of light was varying uh, by a factor of 10 as the object was tumbling every eight hours. And that implied a very extreme uh, shape, uh, most likely flat of a disc. Uh, And um, Uh, That is unusual. You don't see that in rocks uh, that we are used to. They usually change by at most a factor of three in brightness when they tumble. Uh, And then um, there was no cometary tail. There was no evaporation of this object that was visible. Uh, It didn't look like a comet. uh, And yet it exhibited an excess push away from the sun. There was no rocket effect to push it. And the question arose as to what is this non-gravitational acceleration acting on it? Uh, against uh, the gravity that pulls it towards the sun. And um, the only thing that came to my mind was uh, 
sunlight is actually reflected off it and pushing it. And for that, the object had to be very thin, uh, like a sail. And uh, nature doesn't make such things, so I suggested it may be artificial in origin. Uh, and then three years later, there was another object that exhibited exactly the same qualities. It was named 2020SO, discovered in September 2020, uh, by the same telescope in Hawaii. And after three weeks, the astronomers realized, oh, that one uh, is showing indeed the, a push away from the sun um, uh, as a result of uh, reflection of sunlight with no cometary tail. They realized it's actually a rocket booster that was launched by NASA in 1966. And it had thin walls and it was made of stainless steel. That, that's why it didn't evaporate. Uh, and so we know that the, the second one is definitely artificial because we made it. Uh, the question is who made the Oumuamua? My colleagues were saying, no, no, it should be natural. But then every explanation that was proposed involved an object of a type that we've never seen before. Uh, not of the type of the asteroids that we're familiar with, not of the type of the comets that we're familiar with. And uh, I say that you can't tell that it's natural if it's something that we've never seen before until you see another one. So for now, I argue that the artificial origin should be left on the table. And actually, the more interesting development since then was that they, I discovered together with my student, the undergraduate student, Amir Siraj, that there was a, an object detected before Oumuamua uh, by almost four years in January 8th, uh, 2014. And that was a meteor, an object that collided with Earth at a very high speed. Uh, it was detected by US government uh, satellites and uh, was unusual in its speed, uh, indicating that it came from outside the solar system, just like Oumuamua. It was much smaller, about uh, half a meter in size, but uh, it maintained its integrity down to the lower atmosphere of the Earth. And from that, we inferred that it had material strength much tougher than all space rocks that were known, that were catalogued by NASA over the past decade, 272 of them. So that was actually the first uh, interstellar object, not Oumuamua, because this one was catalogued. But both of them appear to be unusual. And the second one, this uh, uh, the one that arrived first, actually, the interstellar meteor, could have been a Voyager-like uh, spacecraft uh, that would explain why it had very high material strength, maintained its integrity down to the lower atmosphere, and also why it was moving so fast. It was moving, moving faster than 95% of all the stars in the vicinity of the Sun relative to the local frame of the Milky Way galaxy. So uh, the question is, why was it so fast relative to compared to stars? And one possibility is that it benefited from propulsion. So here you have it, two interstellar objects, both of them appear to be anomalous. And I say maybe it's a wake-up call for us to recognize that there might be a lot of uh, you know, technological trash in space. Uh, I call it space trash that kept accumulating over billions of years, just like plastics in the ocean. And we can just find it in our backyard. The vast majority of people on Earth right now do not have the knowledge that you have. So... To you, I feel like the the science becomes a little more clear, right? The mathematics. But I think this is why people write it off. I, I think this is why people aren't as amazed because it's easy for us uneducated to say, well, you know, Avi mentioned that we don't know what it is. 
But isn't it more plausible that because space is so large, it's not that it's extraterrestrial. It's just space rock that we haven't encountered yet because there's so much of it. Well, but uh, the thing is, if you look at the numbers, that in fact, for every star, you need uh, 10 to the power 22 such objects to be ejected, like the meteor, for example, or uh, in terms of Oumuamua-like objects, you need 10 to the power 15 of those to exist right now within the solar system. We saw that just the one that came close to us, but you just do the math of the statistics, you know, random statistics of objects, and you find there is a huge number of these things. And it's really challenging to explain it because, you know, I wrote uh, the first paper a decade before Oumuamua was discovered, uh, forecasting how many rocks we should expect from other stars, just based on what we know about the solar system. And we, we calculated that the, this telescope in Hawaii should see nothing because there aren't enough of them. Then Oumuamua was a surprise. It shows that my calculation was wrong. I was intrigued because there is an opportunity to learn something new. But the challenge is still there. How do you make so many rocks per star? Much more than you know you expect from knowing the solar system. And um, if you want an, a natural explanation, it needs to be very common. This process that makes them, this uh, factory that makes these objects, uh, needs to make many more than we expect based on what we know about the solar system by f at least a factor of 100. This discrepancy remains, even if you make it natural. Moreover, it didn't show a cometary tail and you need to explain why it was pushed away from the sun. So the experts, quote unquote, these are playing the adults in the room, so to speak. I'm the kid saying, look, there is something strange here. And they say, no, no, no. Actually, we can uh, explain it. It's just that the data is wrong. So they say the data by the U.S. Space Command, which monitors for ballistic missiles, uh, was measuring the speed uh, incorrectly, and it's a factor of three smaller speed. For them to say that the U.S. government doesn't know what they're talking about when they deal with uh, you know, the satellite data that they obtain, and actually the U.S. Space Command wrote a letter to NASA uh, last uh, last year, confirming at the 99.999% confidence that indeed this object, this meteor, is interstellar in origin. So they took some time out of their day job, which is national security, to help blue sky research. And basically, the Department of Defense came to my defense, wrote a formal letter to NASA. And now, a year later, these astronomers say, oh, we don't believe the U.S. government. They made a mistake by a factor of three. And my, my point is, if you believe that as an astronomer, that they made a mistake by a factor of three, they did, didn't measure the speed correctly, how can you sleep well at night? Because they are getting more, bad, more money than NASA to look for ballistic missiles and advise the US president. If they see measure the speed of a ballistic missile incorrectly by a factor of three, they might warn Mexico for something heading their way when it's heading to Washington, D.C. It's as if they don't know what they're talking about. And... Uh, the other thing is, I went there, okay? So I organized an expedition for one and a half million dollars with 28 exceptional uh, professionals that came with me, the best in the world for ocean expeditions. We went to the site of the meteor that the US government pointed to, uh, and uh, we searched for any molten droplets from the surface of the meteor when it exploded, the, after it was exposed to the immense heat from the fireball that it created as a result of the friction with air. And, you know, we were looking for droplets the size of a millimeter, the head of a pin. 
across a region that is seven miles in size, 10 kilometers. Uh, that was the region. And um, the depth of the ocean was roughly a mile over there. And just think about it, looking for tiny droplets the size of a grain of sand at a depth of uh, a mile across the region of seven miles. That sounds like a hopeless mission. Sure does. <laughs> uh, and, but the amazing thing is we found it. We found by now uh, more than 700 such droplets. Moreover, <laughs> we analyzed the composition of those here at Harvard University. I cannot speak about the details. They will come out uh, after your broadcast airs a few days later uh, in a scientific paper uh, that will be shared by, with everyone. Uh, and uh, we are basically addressing the question, can we tell from the composition, just the elements that make up the droplets that came from this meteor, they were concentrated along the path of the meteor. They were, uh, there were more spheros, more of these droplets near the meteor path than far away. We checked that. We looked at control regions. Anyway, the ones, the excess spheros from the meteor, uh, the question is, do they have a composition that uh, is different from solar system materials? So we can tell the fingerprints of foreign material, material that is, doesn't belong to the solar system. And uh, we have results that uh, would ad address the question independent of the velocity measurement by the U.S. Space Command, forget about that, just the composition itself is a fingerprint. And then uh, beyond that, this, the next question is, given the composition, could it be technological in origin? Because if you imagine a Voyager melting off in a fireball by, by colliding with an Earth-like planet, like let's say a billion years from now, it exits the solar system and then it's not operating anymore, but then it collides with another planet like the Earth and burns up like a meteor. Uh, in that case, if there is a curious scientist on that planet that will go there and to the ocean and collect the, the spherules, uh, they might find that uh, indeed it's not uh, made, it's not a rock. Uh, it would have a higher material strength, obviously, and will have uh, a composition, let's say, of stainless steel, which is very different than a rock. So that's what we are addressing in this paper that will come soon, uh, come out. And my point is that we got to the point where we have results and data and I can share them with the world. And uh, to me, it's a triumph of also, uh, you know, uh, sticking to um, a risky uh, approach to doing science rather than uh, insisting that everything we know already must be right. You know, like, and, uh, in the, you know, to me, that's the, the whole meaning of my life, to learn something new. You can't learn something new if you insist that we know already everything, which is pretty much what the experts are doing. This episode is brought to you by Hims. We don't want to admit it, but 52% of men over 40 experience some form of erectile dysfunction. But like many health problems, no one wants to talk about or take up hours of your day to deal with it. That's why you need to check out Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Hims offers an array of high-quality options, including pills or chews for ED, and serums, sprays, or oral options for hair loss. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you, for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. No insurance is needed. Pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. 
You can even manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hims.com/smart. That's h i m s.com/smart for your personalized treatment options. One last time, hims.com/smart. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hims.com/twist for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscriptions plan. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members on average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com smart. One more time, that's rocketmoney.com smart. I would agree with you. I've said this on the podcast. The experts, I mean, we've interviewed over 400 in different fields, and the ones who say things with entire certainty are the ones that I tend to trust the least because the people who really are at the top of their game, they always caveat things. They'll say, to the best of our knowledge, with our current data, the research right. shows. It's a and sense so it's of a- modesty, by the way. It's also, it reflects modesty, humility. You, 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 you have to acknowledge that your knowledge is incomplete. You are not, you make mistakes. You know, science is about making mistakes. Right. Let me just kind of go back over some things in your book and some things we've talked about, and you can correct me where I'm wrong. A large part of what you talk about is it's unlikely that we meet extraterrestrial beings before we are aware of them through their technologies. And things like these technologies are what you're talking about. The, the quote unquote rock or whatever it is that, that you went and found, the Oumuamua. What I don't yet understand is, is it truly that hard for us to differentiate between a rock and a piece of technology, even if that thing is extraterrestrial? It's not at all, uh, if you have good enough data. Yeah, so for example, from the composition, you could tell the difference. By, by seeing a big piece, you can easily tell the difference if it has screws and bolts on it, it has a label made on some exoplanet, it has buttons on it. The problem is very often, we just don't have enough information, but people dismiss the opportunity to seek that information. They basically say, oh, I know the answer. You know, the, the difference between a kid and an adult is that when uh, there is an object lying on the floor, the kid would run to the object and start playing with it and learn what it is. Whereas the adult would look at it from a distance and say, I don't have time or patience or energy to go and check the object. I pretty much know what it is. So the way to think of it is 
you know, suppose you live in an isolated family and you go out to your backyard and you find a tennis ball that was thrown by a neighbor. Uh, and then uh, you realize we are not alone. Okay, so of course, you know, if the U.S. government found that information, the question arises, should we tell the public? It's just equivalent to asking, should I go back to my family and tell them that I found evidence for a neighbor? Uh, and uh, the ans my answer is obviously yes, because, uh, you know, your family might want to close off the, the windows uh, to protect privacy. They might want to, sp to chat, to go out and chat with their neighbor. And even if you try to hide it, the neighbor might knock on your front door one day or, or affect your life in, in some way. Uh, and so in order for you to adapt to the reality that you live in, you, you really need uh, to disclose that information. Now, it's also possible that if you find a tennis ball or if you find a package in your mailbox, the sender is already dead. The sender is not alive. That's quite possible as well. It just offers you an opportunity to, to get a better perspective about your neighbor. And it's much better than waiting for a phone call, which is pretty much what we have done in looking for signals from extraterrestrial civilizations. You know, you can wait at home for a phone call forever. If nobody tries to call you, nobody uh, is active at the time that you're listening, you would not get a phone call. But the advantage of looking for packages or... Uh, tennis balls in your backyard is that they keep accumulating over time and you don't need the sender to be active when you're looking for them. What percentage chance do you believe we have that tennis ball? We have proof of that tennis ball right now. And what is the best thing we have that is that tennis ball? The material we collected from the Pacific Ocean is the closest I got to holding in my hands. And actually, you know, if we demonstrate that it came from outside the solar system, as uh, our paper will discuss, uh, it will be the first time that humans put their hands, and here I am putting my hands, on the materials from a big object, bigger than half a meter, that came from outside the solar system, never before. Really? We've never identified an object from outside the solar system and in this case, the object in the Pacific Ocean was identified by the U.S. government back in 2014 based on its speed. The fact that the fireball was moving very fast cannot be bound to the sun. And we calculated it was moving very fast even outside the solar system. But then we went an extra step. And we, I mean, the, you can think of the ocean as a museum because at, at a depth of a mile, uh, it preserves whatever lies on the floor, even though it you know, a decade passed, almost a decade since 2014, uh, it was preserved and we were able to use magnets on a sled to collect those tiny spherules. You know, finding them is, is amazing and uh, an amazing feeling. And if you ask me, you know, uh, whether it's technological or not, that, that is a more difficult question to answer because... Uh, you need to ask, okay, well, can I think of a, a natural process that would account for all the properties of this meteor, which we call IM1, Interstellar Meteor 1? That's what I was wondering, because you were referring to the fact that it was, you know, outside the solar system. But in my mind, and again, no idea if I'm right, but it's like, well, is that a big deal if it's just a rock? <laughs> okay, it's a big deal because it's, even if it's just a rock that came from interstellar space, because, and, and by the way, first of all, to demonstrate that, we have to show the composition is different from solar system composition. So oh. we will have some information about where it came from. 
and it means that where it came from looks distinct relative to the solar system. And so that already teaches you something. Okay, that now I'm starting to get it. And and you're right. It'd be like if you grew up on you know the East Coast where I am, and you went to the beach. And you thought that every ocean was the same. And then somebody exactly. gave you ocean water that was different. You'd be like, wait, there must be different oceans out there that I'm unaware of. Even, so exactly. even if it's naturally occurring, it's not an extraterrestrial. Exactly. It's still proving that th there's different solar system. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Wow, that, that is fascinating. I could talk to you for days, but we don't have days. So I have to ask you this because it is one of the things that's on people's minds right now. And I think it's a good time to be you because if there has ever been a time where people are talking about aliens, it's now. And a lot of that is due to, uh, in 2022, the U.S. government admitted to the existence of unidentified aerial phenomena. Could you tell us the synopsis of that? For those of us who just can't understand it or can't deal with it, what did they say and what is its significance? Right. It actually started in June uh, 2021 when the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, delivered a report to the U.S. Congress and saying that uh, there is a class of unidentified objects that uh, military personnel and intelligence personnel report about, and uh, they don't know what they are. And of course, it could be a mixed bag of things that uh, the data is not good enough, but in fact, there are balloons, drones, we just can't tell. And six months later, I actually met uh, Avril at the Washington National Cathedral. There was an event with uh, Jeff Bezos and uh, Bill Nelson, the head of NASA. And uh, in the green room, before we went on stage, I asked uh, Avril, you delivered this report. What do you make of it? She told me, I don't know. So I believe her. I think the government simply cannot figure it out. And a year later, she delivered the second report, which said the same. And around that time, a new office was established in the Pentagon uh, called the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, uh, attempting to hear all of these reports, collect all the data that is available, including classified data, and uh, check whether any of these objects appears non-terrestrial that came from some somewhere else. Uh, actually, they are mostly interested in terrestrial origins because they want to figure out if there are any adversaries like uh, China or, or or Russia that are spying on the U.S. There was this incident with the uh, Chinese balloon that was shut down. That's an example. Um, so um, what the latest uh, from the director of that office who visited my home at some point and, uh, is that, um, that a few percent of these uh, reports uh, are not understood even after they look into them. There are still... Uh, <laughs> A, a significant number of ob of objects, maybe uh, a few tens of them every year, uh, from that are recognized by military personnel that uh, cannot be figured out given all the data we have. And the data is sometimes quite extensive, especially when it's classified. I haven't seen any of that. But two years ago, after the first report from Avril Haines, uh, uh, I decided to establish um, the Galileo project in collaboration with uh, Frank Laukian, one of the donors. And um, and um, could you tell us about that, by the way, the Galileo yeah. project? Yeah. Yeah. So I can tell you where we are right now. The, the goal was, you know, all of these reports by military personnel are anecdotal. Someone had to, 
was at the right place at the right time and saw something. And it's usually not with calibrated instruments or instruments we have full control over. These are cameras that are in jittery cockpits and you can't really trust the, the results. And um, so we decided to uh, have a systematic study of the sky, meaning that we monitor the sky 24-7 all the time uh, and at multiple uh, wavelengths, different cameras, the infrared, the optical, the radio and audio. And we collect all the data and then analyze it with machine learning software. Uh, and so... Uh, you know what surprised me about that in your book and as we talk is I would imagine most people have the same assumption as I do, which is if there were extraterrestrial objects within our data field, like not just within our atmosphere, but within something we can measure, we would know. Like, no, it's not we, true. And it's not true. It's actually no. we are almost actively not looking for it, which is crazy yeah, to me. Yeah. So let me explain that. For example, astronomers have powerful telescopes for many decades, but they are looking at a narrow uh, region of the sky usually, and they are focused, they, they uh, train their telescopes on very distant sources. So if a bird flies overhead, they ignore it. The only organization that monitors the entire sky is the US government, you know, the, or any government uh, for that purpose, because they are worried about ballistic missiles, about threats, about espionage. And so they would be the first to notice something unusual. And the claim is, at least there was a hearing in the U.S. House of Representatives uh, just uh, last month uh, where two pilots uh, testified that they saw things that are quite anomalous. And uh, David Grush, uh, who had a high security clearance, uh, argued that uh, the U.S. has uh, programs for retrieval and uh, reverse engineering of uh, alien spacecraft. He hasn't seen the evidence himself, but he spoke with 40 people that he claims are engaged in these programs. And he promised to give Congress people access to the contact details of those uh, 40 people. And uh, so there is a path forward here. Uh, if they approach those people, we might learn more in the coming months. But uh, who knows? And if it's real... It means that the U.S. government already has the exciting details uh, that we might all want to know, uh, but for some reason it's uh, keeping it uh, hidden. Uh, I don't think it's appropriate for the reason that I mentioned before. I think it should be shared uh, with all humans like any scientific fact about our cosmic neighborhood is. Because anything that came from interstellar space you know, started the journey before humans existed, doesn't really care about how we split the land among nations. Right. It's not a matter of national security. Right. And that was another thing you explained really well in your book, which is this idea of we have these preconceptions of what I'm just going to call them aliens. Aliens might want, might do, might be. And they're almost entirely incorrect simply because you have to think of their motivations why would they be interested in our wars? Like, that's not a thing that would that would serve them. And so it's a way of changing our perspective of if we do come in contact, what do they even want and how do we approach it? Yeah. So if you look at religions, there is a, a very popular view that God looks over your shoulders and therefore you should behave morally. Uh, the reason that view was advocated, obviously, by uh, those religions is to get control over people, to tell people what to do. 
the reason people believe those ideas, I mean, you can tell people whatever you want, they, don't they wouldn't necessarily believe you. The reason people believed it is because we have that reality when we are kids, you know, we have our parents looking over our shoulders. So it fulfills a need. Uh, as a kid, you know that someone is looking over your shoulders and checking, then you grow to become an adult, you become independent, that you know, that the authority is not out there anymore. Uh, and so you're looking for someone else that would be looking over your shoulder. And God is a good opportunity for you to uh, maintain that view that someone is looking over your shoulder. Since you had the, the same view as a kid, it sounds completely natural to assume that. And, um, you know, if you think about the aliens doing the same, because obviously an advanced technological civilization is a good approximation to God. It could create life in the laboratory. It may even create the baby universes in the laboratory. So if we imagine uh, uh, an advanced technological civilization as God, I would say it's very unlikely that it cares much about us uh, because, uh, you know, it's just like helicopter parenting. I don't expect the aliens to be our parents, they're not our parents, and they're not uh, interested in helicopter parenting, uh, basically making sure that we do the right thing. They don't care less about it. It's just like you uh, drive a, a bicycle uh, on the street, you know, you wouldn't care about what the ants are doing. If the ants on the pavement are, uh, you know, going to the wrong crack, you will not stop your bike and try to direct them with your finger to the right crack <laughs> in the pavement. I mean, that is ridiculous. Uh, or if they're in danger of killing themselves because you see a drop of water and they're heading that way and they will die in the drop of water because of the rain, you don't go and correct them to go away from that. I mean, that is a ridiculous... And of course, it's a, a, a an idea that stems from self-importance. Okay, We enjoy being self-important. So we thought that we are the center of the universe. Why? Because it makes us important. And then we put Galileo in house arrest when he claimed that otherwise, because how dare you even doubt that we are so important? Uh, of course, no, that ends up being the reality that we live in. We are not at the center of the universe. But we still maintain the view that if there is anything out there that is superhuman, uh, like a, a high level technological civilization, it would care about saving us. Why would it care about saving us? I don't see any reason. Uh, First, we have to demonstrate that we are intelligent enough for them to care about us in the first place, because as of now, we are wasting most of our resources on fighting each other in wars, on military budgets. Uh, that is not an intelligent thing to do, right? Just imagine if Russia and Ukraine collaborated on a space program instead of fighting each other over some exactly. territory. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. In the in the uh, uh, First World War, my grandfather fought in the battlefield between the Germans and the French. He was on the German side. And uh, there were 700,000 people that died in that battle of Verdun. Uh, and uh, just think about it. Hundreds of thousands of people die. And they barely moved, moved their feet one way or the other over a period of a few years. And it was all, you know, a matter of being a patriot, a patriot of your country and caring about the, your nation. But if you think about it, it's very dumb. It's right? not intelligent. Absolutely. And if someone looks at it from a distance, you, that someone would say, what are these animals doing there? You know, like <laughs> uh, killing each other uh, over some tiny territory on a piece of rock that they were born on. Who, who really cares about it in the big scheme of things of the universe? Uh, and uh, moreover, you know, they keep looking down all the time, these, these ants down there on this rock. 
they don't look up and realize there is much more real estate in space. Right, uh, and right. So uh, my point is, we haven't proven yet that we belong to the class of intelligent civilizations. Actually, you do talk about that. And, you know, we don't have time to discuss it all, but I loved your description of, you know, A, B, C, D civilizations and essentially the evolution of intelligence, right? So like where we are, and I agree with you, is we're pretty much at the lowest rung, which is we don't even keep things even. We are destroying our home habitat and those around us. So that's just a tease for those as we talk about the book, if that sounds like something you're interested in. One of the things that was most striking when I read your book, finally answered a question, is you proved for me that it is most likely that if we ever find extraterrestrial life, they will be vastly more evolved than we are. You know, a lot of people make that assumption, but without any rationale. Could you tell us why that would make a lot of logical sense? Yeah, it's very simple. Uh, our science and technology is only one century old. So quantum mechanics, uh, the foundation of modern physics, because reality is quantum, uh, that was discovered just a century ago, exactly a century ago. And uh, now it's the foundation for all the gadgets, the electronic gadgets that allow the two of us to converse, uh, computers, internet, all of that is based on quantum mechanics. And we just discovered it a century ago. And a century is really a very short time compared to the age of the Earth or the age of the solar system or the age of uh, the universe. You know, it's uh, one part in a hundred million of the age of the universe. So uh, that means that... Um, a civilization that preceded us uh, must have had uh, much more time uh, if they developed their technologies, you know, thousands, millions, or even billions of years before us. And most of the stars formed billions of years before the sun. So we are relatively late bloomers. We're coming late to the party. Uh, it's very likely that we can learn from those that were around for a while. So, you know, we just came late to the stage, the cosmic stage. We are not at the center of it. So um, it means that the cosmic play is not about us. And if we want to learn more about what it means, uh, we might want to seek other actors that were around longer. They can tell us what the play is about. It's that last part that got it for me, which was, look, it's very simple. The sun is younger than most stars. So most things, most places where life could exist, and you talk about there's a lot of them, they're vastly, you know, more mature. So if you just do the numbers, if you're the youngest person at your school, it's likely that those above you, everyone else is going to have had more time to evolve and be intelligent. Exactly. It, exactly. it is a simple answer, but I think these types of questions rarely have simple answers. And that's why I was like, all right, got one solved. It's very well, cool. Well, you know, really, the most important thing is uh, people say it's an extraordinary claim to even consider another intelligent species. I say that it's arrogant to think that we are alone. It's arrogant of us because it basically says that we are unique and special, pinnacle of creation. Nothing like us exists anywhere. Uh, I think it's uh, an ordinary assumption to say if we exist, someone else exists because there are tens of billions of stars like the sun in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And then there are 
hundreds of billions of galaxies like the Milky Way in the observable volume of the universe uh, out to the cosmic horizon. And there are many more beyond the cosmic horizon. We know that conditions continue for at least 4,000 times the distance to the cosmic horizon. So um, the point is that, you know, the numbers tell you that it's very unlikely and it's arrogant to think that we are the only ones. And what that means is that we need to search. And, you know, it's not inappropriate to say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence because the people who say that are not seeking the evidence. It's a circular argument. And I say extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding. And that is the way that physics science is done because when we don't understand what most of the matter in the universe is, the dark matter, we invest billions of dollars in the Large Hadron Collider to perhaps discover the dark matter particle. We have done that and we haven't found anything. Nobody says that's a mistake because that's the only way to learn. You have to invest. Nobody said it's an extraordinary claim to say that the dark matter is a supersymmetric particle that the Large Hadron Collider will find. Nobody said that. We invested the billions of dollars. We haven't found it. In retrospect, it was an extraordinary claim because it's not true. However, uh, in the case of others like us, we know that we exist. We know that we sent out probes to interstellar space. And so what is more natural than to say things like us may have existed in other places. Let's check for their probes that they sent billions of years ago. Why is that not in the mainstream of science? That to me is an aberration of academia where people are engaged for decades in the study of supersymmetry that turned out to be wrong, in the study of extra dimensions that we don't know exist for decades. And that is celebrated by Brian Greene, Neil deGrasse Tyson as if that is the frontier of physics. Well, it's not because we don't have any evidence. We don't have even an experiment in mind that within our lifetime will show us the extra dimensions. We don't have that. And yet it's celebrated as if. But then when we see anomalous objects in space, that is considered fringe. And I think that is an aberration. It's completely psychological. And it, of course, stems in part from the tendency of people to say, oh, you know, talking about new symmetries of nature, talking about dimensions when we know there are some dimensions, that's okay. Don't worry about it because we know that thing exists. But talking about, uh, you know, gadgets from uh, extraterrestrial technological civilization, well, that touches a nerve because then it means that we may not be the smartest uh, since the Big Bang. And you know what's funny about that? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm weird. But I feel like the average person would love that news. It's the experts who are the ones who don't want it. Well, uh, so here I am trying to change yeah. that. Yeah. And um, uh, I should say that the public really is fascinated by this. Uh, yeah. And um, also artists, you know, there is a playwright that wrote a play about and it will be shown in a month about my research. Uh, he wants it to go to Broadway. Uh, there is a songwriter who wrote a song. There is a sculpture who is making now a sculpture. There is a documentary filmmaker that went with me to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and uh, there were 50 of them that wanted to be there. I, I chose one. Uh, and altogether, it's inspiring to people. I, I get email messages about it all the time. The only place where I get pushback, ridicule, bullying is in academia. That's and you crazy. ask yourself, why would that be the case? Because academia is supposed to be about openness of mind, about blue sky research. And people are, you know, attacking me personally, even though we're we are talking about substance here and we should just stick to substance. But it's just peculiar to see that. And, uh, you know, just to give you another example, when 
uh, we don't know what the nature of dark matter is. And, uh, you know, we infer that there is dark matter based on using uh, Einstein's gravity. And so it's possible that our understanding of gravity is wrong. This is called modified gravity as an alternative to dark matter. And, uh, you know, some even some decades ago when we had a junior faculty in, in my department and when uh, that person saw a paper saying, well, maybe dark matter doesn't exist, it's uh, modified gravity of this type, he got extremely upset and emotional about it and said, this is nonsense, I don't want to hear about it. Uh, and um, to me, that's a problem to be solved by therapists. It's not the way science should be, because science should be open-minded, you should be, until you figure out the dark matter, the nature of the dark matter, the possibility that it's uh, modified gravity should be left on the table. And the same is true about objects like Oumuamua or the meteor that we talked about. People should not get sick by considering alternatives that, you know, you know, when people insist that everything in the sky is stones, like those astronomers that worked on rocks for decades, uh, I call it the stone age of science. That's a good, it's a really good point. On a brighter note, you do say in your book, we have never been so close to scientifically valid proof that life on Earth and human civilization are not alone in the universe. What gives you that hope and that uh, opinion that we've never been closer? It is that. It is what you're holding. So for those listening, it's what you're holding. It's what we talked about earlier. It's those those things you found. Yeah, uh, that gives me hope because we went to find it. We And you will see the results in the scientific paper. But... Moreover, um, you know, uh, it, it demonstrates that obviously if you are not searching, you will not find anything. Okay, so when Enrico Fermi said, where is everybody without searching, obviously, you know, it's just like a single person standing at home and saying, I don't have a partner. Well, you, to, have, to find your partner, you have to do some work. Okay, you have to go to dating sites, you have to look through your window, you have to go to your backyard. You can't just say, where is everybody? That's what Fermi did, and I'm really surprised that people... Uh, echo that question. You can't just say that. You have to seek partners. And space is vast. Time is long. Why would the spaceship just land in Los Alamos at the time that Fermi is having lunch? That is ridiculous. Uh, and um, it's the same as those people who say, well, I would wait for the partner to reach me. And that doesn't work. Okay. And uh, the same with Elon Musk, who is engaged in launching uh, communication satellites and claims you know, I haven't seen any evidence for aliens. Obviously, you're not you're not an astronomer, right? You're yeah, not seeing. Yeah. So yeah. I went there to the Pacific. You know, I'm trying to do the work. And when I do that, I get pushback, which is really strange. Why would any scientist be ob uh, object to the idea of collecting evidence? That That is contrary to the scientific uh, method uh, of, you know, you want to seek evidence. That should be the way. Uh, I think they object because they see the... Uh, interest of the public, the fact that there, it garners a lot of uh, public attention. And it's it's simply because the subject resonates with the public. And I think as scientists, we should uh, uh, satisfy the interests of the public because, you know, we are using taxpayers' money. And if the public cares about whether we have a neighbor more than what is the nature of dark matter, you know, we should at least invest equally in the two subjects. As of now, we invest zero in the search for technological gadgets in the vicinity of Earth, uh, and we invest the billions of dollars in the search for dark matter. I want everybody to hear that, because that is the most shocking thing that I learned, which is we're not looking. 
Because everybody listening probably thinks, of course, we're looking. I mean, it's one of the greatest questions is, are we alone? And, and to hear that the people we think care don't really, to an extent, no, is amazing. No, they actually push back. They it's amazing. not only don't care, they, yeah. they are angry about me going to the Pacific, about me saying that the meteor might have been interstellar. They want to uh, kill it by writing papers that saying the government data is wrong. So they don't just say, I am wrong. They, they say the US Space Command doesn't know what they're measuring because we want to fit it with a stone that came from the solar system. That's basically the paper that appeared last month. That's it. It's crazy. Now, it's crazy. They, it's not only that they sit back and relax and say, okay, well, I don't want to collect data. I have other priorities. No, they attack and attempt to say, we discovered an object from outside the solar system. They have a problem with discovering this thing. That's and so, weird that, so that shows you the headwind that I have to face. And moreover, there is no federal money allocated. Of course, there is a study that NASA established, which should come up with a report very soon, perhaps by the time your program will air. And um, if it recommends that NASA invests in the study of unidentified anomalous phenomena, then we might have some federal money allocated for this task. But as I said, the search for dark matter for decades has billions of dollars and nobody doubts it even though we haven't found anything so the track record is zero the track record of seti searching for radio signals is zero nobody says anything about that uh, uh to me it illustrates the fact that maybe we are using the wrong method why not look for objects uh and what you find is the seti people opposed saying bad things in fact, they are engaged in writing blogs, organizing talks that will say Oumuamua was a rock. They just organized it last month, a talk that says that Oumuamua was a rock. And then they had a blog post saying that, uh, yes, Oumuamua is a natural object. Why would they be so eager to uh, resist the possibility that we might have encountered? Uh, it's because they are very proud of the method they've been using for 70 years, trying to look for radio signals. But they, they haven't found anything. So my point is just, you know, if someone doesn't find the dark matter to be supersymmetric particles, you know, I can t guarantee to you that they will have no objection if another team would uh, argue that it may be an axion, a different type of particle, and would look for it. They would have no problem. But for the SETI community, if you don't do radio signal detection, then, uh, you know, they have a problem with it. I'm not a conspiracy theorist and I don't typically fall into them, but do you think there's any chance that there's also part of those in power who don't want us to find life outside of us because I'm pretty sure it would then change the balance of power? I, I really think if well, we had inconclusive evidence that we weren't alone, people's priorities, uh, the way nations interact, they would have to change because our entire realization of what it means to be here would change. Right. But think about Marie Antoinette uh, when the French Revolution uh, started. Obviously, she wanted to maintain power as the queen, right? And she was very worried and she would have liked to suppress the ideas of the French Revolution. But who cares? The French Revolution took place. Sure. Right? The guillotine uh, chopped a lot of heads and we moved on. 
And the principles of the French Revolution were endorsed by the US Constitution, by the way, some, many of them. So my point is, who cares about this resistance? Oh, let's I don't just, care. I'm saying, yeah, do you think just, the people in power care? Like, do you oh, think but that's who, true? But, but that was Marie Antoinette, right? And so eventually, what I'm doing as a scientist, I will, you know, the sky is not classified, the oceans are not classified. Eventually, we will know. And when we know, heads will be chopped in the sense that we will not adhere to past practices. And uh, that's what happened with the French Revolution. So we just need to bring in the, the revolution. That's all. And, you know, Copernicus did that. Obviously, people back then thought that it would be destabilizing to society. Uh, that was called the Copernican Revolution, that the Earth is not at the center of the universe. And we are heading perhaps to another Copernican Revolution. This, this one would be more significant, that we are not the, the only sentient beings out there man it'd be crazy avi i know we have to let you go and so you can be as brief as you would like but there is a, a term that you laid out that i was unfamiliar with and i think it's really cool and it's called day two could you tell us about day two what it is what it means well what do you do after the first encounter when the news breaks uh, that uh, at least to you that uh, indeed uh, we are not alone and uh i think it would have a huge uh, uh, impact on on reorganizing society and 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 the way you know changing our priorities and uh, our aspirations for space and uh, of course there is no protocol and I would advocate that we shouldn't establish a committee that would plan for day two because uh, um, we don't know what the encounter would entail you know if you have a visitor to your backyard the way you respond to the visitor should not be decided by a committee ahead of time you first need to figure out who the visitor is because for different visitors, you will behave differently. So my advice is let's wait and see who is visiting us before we decide what to do about it. I love it. Avi, these conversations spark so much in my mind, again, on my side of the table, just positivity, hope, curiosity, which is what this podcast is all about. So I appreciate the work you're doing. I love the book. I'm recommending it. We'll link to it. It's called Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars. Avi, for those listening who are interested in this, what do you want them to do? Uh, well, just join me in this uh, thrilling exploration. And uh, uh, if you are young enough, you can become a scientist and uh, uh, do not uh, bow down, bow down to, do not necessarily dance to the tunes of uh, those uh, committees that uh, make decisions that do not make sense, but uh, chart your own path. And I think it, there is a great advantage to taking the path that was not taken because you might find the low-hanging fruit. Nobody went there. Uh, and uh, this should be, I think, a guiding principle for life. If you want your life to be inspiring, exciting, just define the path for yourself. Don't listen to what others are telling you. Where can we keep up to date on this new information you mentioned the, the paper coming out the press release there's so much coming out but we don't know where it is where, where any advice yeah so um i have um, updates on medium.com avi lobe at medium.com i will have an essay uh, explaining the content of the paper linking to it so you will be able to see it there hopefully around a few days after your uh, podcast airs fantastic that's great Avi, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Thanks for having me. A thank you to this week's guest, Avi Loeb. The episode was hosted, as always, by Chris Stemp. 
and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Avi's book, Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars, is available wherever books are sold. Apologize for the voice, I've got a little bit of a head cold as you can probably tell. Let's jump into the housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.